Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Let me pray before we start. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your Word. I want to thank you that, um, that it is your revelation to us about your nature, about your character, about the fact that you came to seek and save that which was lost and we revel in our foundness this morning. I wanna pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present to lead us into all truth. I wanna pray that we'd be able to posture ourselves um, in a position of receptivity and responsiveness. God, we acknowledge this is not an academic exercise. Uh, This is a spiritual pursuit. And so we ask, Spirit of God, take what is yours, plant that seed, water it, and may it bear fruit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we are still continuing our series through the Gospel um, of Luke called Tables and Sinners. Last week, Sean did an amazing job and... uh, He took that portion of scripture that talks about how we are to be able to resist temptation, how we should not be the ones that are setting traps for other people, how we should not be leading people astray, and how we should be forgiving each other. Uh, The end of that scripture ends with the disciples saying, this is an incredibly difficult task, how are we going to do it? Please, please help. And Jesus says, if you have enough faith, you can tell this mulberry tree. How many of you know what a mulberry tree is? Did you guys know? There we go. Um, I don't know why he chose mulberry tree, but he said that anyway. And uh, he says, you can, you can tell it to uproot itself, throw itself into the sea. The very next verses are the ones that I'm going to be teaching on this morning. And uh, I was telling my wife, I really need, uh, seeing as I'm the one that sets the preaching schedule, give myself a break from difficult texts, you know. <laughs> Uh, Two weeks ago, I spoke on the shrewd manager, um, and this week, I'm speaking on this text, and and you'll see why it's it's a bit of a prickly text. It's Luke 17, and it's verses 7 through 10, not 19, as it says there. Um, Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, and I'm reading out of the Common English Bible. Would any of you say to your servants, so this is just after the exchange that Jesus has had with his disciples um, about how we are to handle one another. And this is just after Jesus has said, if you have enough faith, you're able to do this. this is, these are the very next words that he speaks. Would any of you say to your servants who had just come in from the field after plowing or tending sheep, come, sit down for dinner? Wouldn't you say instead, fix my dinner? Put on the clothes of a table servant and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you can eat and drink. You won't thank the servant because the servant did what you asked, will you? Or I think not. In the same way, when you have done everything required of you, you should say, we servants deserve no special praise. We have only done our duty, or we have done only our duty. Now, how many of you have watched Downton Abbey? So, right, you've watched Downton Abbey. There are 22 types of servants in in Downton Abbey. There are chambermaids and kitchen maids and ladies' maids and footmen and valets and butlers. And there is a very, very clear separation 
between who is the servant and who are those being served. You call the servant by their first name, Neil, and Neil would say, Mr. Saltis. There is a, there is a very clear separation. I think we should, st we should start that, right? We should just call me Mr. Saltis, you know? Um, they're in the basement. They don't get seen. Um, it's important, especially for chambermaids, that they don't get seen doing their job. Um, and there is a very clear separation. Now, the, the difference between Downton Abbey and this parable is that often, and there were landowners um, in that time that had multiple servants, just like Downton Abbey had multiple servants. But, but in this case, Jesus is pointing out that this is a servant that is basically doing everything. Uh, this is a servant that is, that is out, he's either plowing the fields or he's tending the sheep, and now he has a job, now he comes in. So here's the servant, he's tired, he comes in, and what does the master say to him? Not, hey man, you've had a tough day, you've had a long day, why don't you have a shower, why don't you join me and just for he says, no, get my dinner ready, put on your proper clothes, and serve me, and after I've eaten, then you can eat. Now, there's a level of offense that we pick up in this. There's a, there's a modern offense to us that is exactly opposite to the offense that the original audience would have received. The original audience would have received exactly the sense of like, of course the servant wouldn't do that. Of course the master wouldn't ask him to do that. What a ridiculous thing that you're saying, Jesus. Now, remember, this is not a parable that Jesus is using. He, this is a cultural reality. He's, he's pointing out something that is real in the culture, and he's saying that servants are not to expect or require or desire reward. They're not to expect it from a monetary sense. They're not to expect it from a social reciprocity sense. So in other words, you aren't supposed to receive the sense of like, because you did this, now you can be invited to me. Our, our social standing works. Now, the early audience would have looked at that and agreed with Jesus. Yes, it's absurd that a master and servant would recline at the same table. I've told this story when I lost my key when I was uh, hiking do you remember that, that little kid with the grandmother and the grandfather found it? And what I didn't tell you is, I, I mean, we were so happy that um, I got the girls and we, we got whatever money we could and I, I grabbed the money and I went to the kid and I, I gave him the money because he found the key and his mom grabbed the money out of my hand and said, no, no, no. And I was like, okay. You know, I was just trying to reward the child, and she was probably thinking, I do not want a child to learn to take money from strangers. I'm sure that was part of it, you know. But maybe there was a greater thing in her saying, actually, I, I want him to understand that he did a good thing and not necessarily to expect a reward. The problem is in our modern day culture, our offense, we, we feel sorry for the servant. We, we're, maybe some of us are offended on behalf of the servant. Um, and Mainly because when we do something and there's no direct or immediate benefit to us, we want some external validation. We want some praise. We want some reward. We want some recognition. That's why when you see a lost pet sign, what is the first thing that you see on top of the lost pet sign? Reward, right? Have you ever seen a lost pet sign that says, do the right thing? No, you don't, right? You see in big, bold, red exclamation, reward. Okay, that's grabbed my attention. Now what? 
man, it's, that's a lot of work to look for some little dog. And it's only 50 bucks? No, thank you. I'm moving on, you know. Think about this. You find a wallet with $300 in it. You return it to the owner. The owner says, thank you so much, and turns around and walks away. See, like, how do you feel? You're sitting there thinking, like, how much of the 300 should he give me? Should he give me all of the 300? <laughs> if it was me, and I had $300 in my wallet, and I can't remember when I've ever had $300 in my wallet, but if that was me, I would have given him all $300, because the real pain is the driver's license and the credit cards, right? You're like, hey, take it. You know, at least I don't have to be on the phone with a DMV trying to explain what has happened. We look at this, and so the question that I'm asking is, is this a biblical imperative for rudeness? Is this Jesus saying, yeah, we should be rude to one another. We should not thank one another. No, this is not about that. This is not about ignoring people's faithfulness. This is not about setting in place this Downton Abbey idea that the people that serve me are not worth my time, are not worth my attention, and certainly not worth my thanks. This is not about that. This is about examining our motives. This is about examining how our motives shape our behavior. This is also not something that works against what we're trying to build at Mercy Commons, which is a culture of honor. So in Mercy Commons, we say we look for opportunities to honor each other when someone, something is worthy of honor. This doesn't work against that. Expressing gratitude is not unbiblical. But what Jesus is zeroing in on is the motivation and expectation of reward. And why was he zeroing in on that? Because the Pharisees believed that God was somehow in their debt for two reasons. One, because they were of the chosen race, and two, because they were doing everything that the law required them to do. So because of that, God was now in their debt and obligated to reward and bless them. And Jesus is saying, this is not how the kingdom of God works. We look at what Paul, uh, Paul, Sean, we had Paul the Apostle here last week. Sorry you missed that, you know. Sorry. Yeah, I know. That's, just because you... No, sorry, that was, that was pretty funny. The rest of you who missed that, that was good. You should talk to him afterwards. Okay. What Sean reminded us of is that it's justice, it's forgiveness, it's the protection of the innocence, it's the resisting of temptation. All of these things are things that are expected of a Christ follower and should not be unique or extraordinary in the way in which we walk. The bottom line is we are called to a life of hidden holiness and faithfulness. We are all called to a life of hidden holiness and faithfulness. I can't speak on holiness. I'm going to speak on hidden faithfulness, but holiness is this. Would I do this thing if people knew I was doing this thing? So holiness is the idea of who you are in the dark. Would I still be doing this thing if people knew I was doing this, this, this thing? Faithfulness is this. Would I still do this if people didn't know I was doing this? Would I still be doing this if people didn't know I was doing this? So if hidden holiness is who you are in the dark, hidden faithfulness is who you project to be in the light. This is what I want people to see of me. And so I want people 
to recognize the fact that I'm doing this thing. I want the status gratitude from this thing. And, and I want people to know how good I am. And that's what Jesus was zeroing in with regards to the Pharisees consistently throughout the book of Luke. I remember being at a prayer meeting with a, a bunch of pastors. Karen was there and... Um, and uh, a couple months ago, we did an event where, maybe some of you remember it, where we, we took some kids from Richmond Elementary School, and we did a partner event with Fullerton, and, and uh, we, we taught them how to swim. Well, we didn't, but uh, the staff at, at the Y taught them how to swim. And it was in response to one of the kids actually passing away at Richmond Elementary because she drowned in a jacuzzi. And we went and asked the principal, how can we help? And she said, you know, it would be amazing is, is if you did some swim lessons. So we're sitting there with pastors. It's, it's one of these meetings about the church, how the church can serve the city, unity of the church, and all those kinds of things. And they start talking about a church in the city that has done the swim event. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're going to they're gonna at least mention my name. I'm sure they're at least going to mention Mercy Commons. I'm sure, you know, and so I'm getting ready. Like, you know, it's like, you know, when you win the Oscar, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm so shocked. But here's my speech, you know. It's like, so like I'm getting ready and none of that happened. They just moved on. A church in the city did this. We are so grateful. We are wonderful. And I was like, huh. Like, I saw that going differently in my mind, you know? And I sat there, and I went home, and I realized, I mean, God was teaching me something for sure. And, and he asked me this, Nick, if, if anything that you did in response to the grace and mercy that you've received, no one ever knew you did that. Would you still do it? And I was like, yeah, of course I would. <laughs> the Spirit of God is like, really? Maybe you should spend some time wondering about that. Karen reminded me of uh, this guy who Karen's parents are in a memory care facility. And before COVID, there was this guy. Was it just a guy? He had a team, had a team of people. And uh, he would go to the memory care facility and he would print out old worship songs, like so that you could read them from the back, right? So extra large, giant font. And he would go there, and he would lead worship, and he would pray for people, um, and he would spend maybe an hour there. I don't even know what that guy's name is. I do know this, that in the kingdom of God, in terms of this idea of hidden faithfulness, were those two examples with regards to impact and faithfulness. I remember Karen telling me that story and thinking, wow, I don't know that I've understood the idea of hidden faithfulness the way that that man and his team had understood that. Now, why is hidden sacrificial faithfulness so important? Well, I think the first thing that is, is really obvious is that it shapes our character, right? It reveals some deep and ugly things in our heart about why it is that we do things. Now, the challenge with all of this is like, Nick, how is that a good thing? 
It's because when the Spirit of God reveals something in you, He never does it to shame or guilt you. There's always an invitation for grace to come in that area. And so as shamed as I did feel, shame is the wrong word, as, as convicted as I felt when I left that prayer meeting, I felt loved by God because He revealed an area where I was not operating like Jesus. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And, uh, and so one of the reasons that, we, that, that, that hidden faithfulness is important to us is because it both reveals our character and it shapes our character. It shapes our character because it's against the principles of this world. Who knows what the five-finger principle is or the Witham principle? What's in it for me, Right? It's, it's literally, there's a sales technique where, where, they, where they say to you, and the most important thing you've got to show people is that there is a direct benefit for them doing something. What's in it for me? It's a worldly principle. And one of the reasons that we need to engage in this idea of hidden sacrificial faithfulness is because it is so opposite what the rest of the world is, yeah, is operating in. Secondly, it provides a grid for decision-making and for relationships. I think the challenge is, what am I willing to sacrifice for and who am I willing to sacrifice for? Is it going to be noticed? Is it going to be applauded? Now, I have to say this. As much as God is dealing with me and has dealt with me in the whole idea of being noticed and being applauded, that is not as much of a struggle for me as the idea of this. Is, is it going to be immediately effective? So... So the Spirit of God has challenged me in this area of, Nick, are you doing this because you're going to be noticed? Are you doing this because you're going to be recognized and applauded? Are you doing this because you know that your effort is going to produce an immediate result? Now that's where I struggle, right? My wife is giggling here with Valerie. <laughs> They're being really mean to me. So. It's a, yeah, that's right, you know. It's absurd. When, when I think about it, it's absurd. I want to see immediate fruit. I want this little bit of effort to produce immediate fruit. It's like going to the gym and doing this, okay, and then getting on the scale. <laughs> Nothing happened? Are you serious right now? That's it. I'm not doing this, you know? Now, we look at that and we're like, that's ridiculous. But with every endeavor that we take on, we understand that there's a measure of sacrificial faithfulness that we give to this, and we will reap a reward in due time. Prayer, devotion, gathering, generosity, mission. There are seasons where I wonder, why on earth am I doing this? I'm not seeing a return. And God is like, Nick, it's not about seeing a return. It's about training your soul in hidden faithfulness. Because you will reap a reward in due time if you don't give up. And thirdly, it's, it's the basis of our flourishing. It's the exchange of, of simple faithfulness. That, that scripture tells us that faithfulness will reap for us love, joy, peace. Will reap all of this fruit for us. But we think that simple faithfulness somehow robs us of the joy and indulgence of spontaneity. So the idea of a date night, right? How many couples have a date night? Now, is the date night guaranteed intimacy? No. It, 
We're going to pray for those people who very and too quickly said no, you know. What the regular date night does, what the regular date night does is create a context for intimacy. So what it does is this consistent time where we know we're going to be together creates an opportunity for us to be intimate. Most of the damage comes when the date night has to lead to intimacy, right? There's a lot of giggling happening. So, but the date night is there as a simple act of faithfulness saying, we are going to set some time aside to sow seed for relational connection and intimacy. Does that make sense? Okay. We think of obedience and faithfulness as some kind of robotic response because we have a misunderstanding of the ideas of wrath and judgment of God, rather than looking at it as an invitation to live the way that we were designed to live, which brings us deep joy and peace. Why? Because we are the adopted, loved children of the living God. The privilege of being light in a dark place, the privilege of being salt in a decaying world, the privilege of doing something that is difficult and so very conspicuously different to the pattern of this world. We realize that we are exiled eternal souls that are temporarily given the privilege of establishing kingdom outposts on this earth until the fullness of the kingdom of Jesus is revealed in his triumphant return. Until then, we rejoice. In the meantime, we celebrate moments where, where the window opens and the kingdom of heaven comes, where people are saved and set free and released. And even as, as Rick prayed this morning, where, where there's a sense in which things happen when we pray for people, when people are healed, when marriages are, are put back together, where people come to faith. There are, there are the privileged moments where we respond to hate and fear with grace and truth, where we choose to forgive instead of judge, where we choose to give people the benefit of the doubt. Those are things that are way more invigorating. So what makes hidden faithfulness possible? It's like, okay, that's good. I, I know that it's important, but what, what makes it possible? And Paul, not Sean, tells the Thessalonian church in uh, First Thessalonians, and he, he, he speaks to them, and this is important. We look at verse two to eight. How does he start? We always thank God. So again, we look at the passage of scripture that Jesus is saying, this is not about not thanking people. This is not about you know, not giving honor where honor is due. He says, we always thank God for all of you when we mention you constantly in our prayers. This is because we remember your work that comes from faith, your effort that comes from love or your labor of love, and your steadfastness or endurance or perseverance that comes from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Key verse, brothers and sisters, you are loved by God and we know that he has chosen you. We can, we can live a life of hidden faithfulness when our work originates in faith. And this word work can be translated vocation. The question is, do I believe and operate in the reality that my vocation, this is important, whether it is fulfilling or not, is inextricably part of God's plan to shape me and disperse 
salt and light. Do I really believe that? Even if my boss hates me and I hate my boss, even if my job right now is caring for my children in my home, do I really believe that my vocation is an opportunity to disperse salt and light and an opportunity for God to shape me? Is there a faith in my heart that actually says, God, this work, this vocation is part of what you're doing in me and through me with regards to the kingdom of God? Am I able to spend less time worried about results, less time worried about recognition, less time worried about those things than asking the Spirit of God through faith, make me obedient, give me perseverance, and give me strength in this? The older I get, the more convinced I am of this, that God has not set specific goals for me to achieve, but that God has invited me into a dance of intimacy that if I let him lead, it will be way more fulfilling than basically saying, do this, do this, do the other thing. I had my midlife crisis when I was 30. I guess that's a quarter crisis. I don't know what that is. But I had set some goals for my life. Maybe four. I couldn't even see them on the horizon when I turned 30. I remember having a massive pity party. And I went to God, and he said, I don't know that you involve me in any of that. Are you listening to me for the next step? I'm faithful, I'm with you, and this is not about results, this is about faithfulness. This is not about outcomes, this is about obedience. Hebrews 11 verse 13 is one of my favorite scriptures, you know, the... Uh, Hebrews 11 passage is, is a passage where the writer talks about all these men and women of faith. It's called the Hall of Faith. And in this passage, he reminds them. He, he talks about Abraham and he talks about Moses and he, and he talks about all these prophets. But he says this about them. All these people died in faith without receiving the promises. But they saw their promises from a distance and welcomed them. And they confessed that they were strangers and immigrants on earth. And we have to come to terms with the reality that there are some things that we will not see fulfilled through our energy, effort, faithfulness, and work. But we have the privilege of being faithful sons and daughters of the living God, that when we see him face to face and all of the jigsaw puzzles have come together, we will be privileged in the little part that we played. We'll see it from afar off. So we can live with hidden faithfulness when our work originates in faith. We can live with hidden faithfulness when our effort is motivated by love. When my effort is not motivated by reward or accolade, but by my love for Jesus and therefore my love for my neighbor and my family, then it is a labor of love. My wife is a doula, and she knows all about labor of love. I mean, literally labor of love, right? Ladies, those of you that have, that have had children. And there is a labor when it comes to that. <laughs> that was weird. If I love God and if I love people, then the effort that I exert is automatically purer. My outcome may not be what I think it's going to be, but my motive is automatically purer. So my question is, going back to what Sean preached, 
Have I forgiven someone without gathering allies and without gathering people that are sorry for me to prove my forgiveness? Does that make sense? If Joey has harmed me, have I actually just forgiven Joey for him harming me? Or have I gone to Neil and said, man, it's been a really tough time, Neil. You know, Joey really harmed me and he really hurt me. And Neil will say, suck it up, Nick, you've got to forgive him. And I'll say, you're right, I have to, but thank you for that. Or I gather people around me to, to show them what a good person I am in forgiving Joey. Or have I just said, God, you know my hurt and you know my pain, but I also know that I've had this massive debt removed from me. And in the name of Jesus, as difficult as this is, I want to send this person away debt-free. I've had people come to me and said, I just want you to know that I forgive you. Has that ever happened to you? Right? And you're like, that is so gracious. It's not gracious at all. Because I haven't had the opportunity to repent. I haven't had the opportunity to discuss with that person. The real godly thing, if you really want to do that, is to actually say, I forgive you and not say anything to that person. Now, I'm not saying, guys, here, here what I'm, sometimes there is reconciliation necessary. There is, you know, uh, Sean preached on this last week. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Sometimes it, we do have to go through that. But you're placing an extra burden on someone when they don't know that they've harmed you. And they come in on the back end and suddenly, because of your great benevolence, you've forgiven them. You've actually put a burden on them, is what you've done. So when our effort is motivated by love, we don't do things like that. We, we go out of our way not to entrap people. So this week, I made a very naughty comment to someone that I knew felt a certain way about something. I, I literally did exactly what Sean said we shouldn't do. I set this little trap to see if this person was going to take this trap. And you know what? When they didn't, I felt so condemned. Not because it didn't work, but because I was like, what were you doing? Even if they took the trap, what is the benefit of that? What, what on earth were you doing? You were not loving that person. This person was mature enough not to take that trap. Or they didn't hear what I said. Either way, you know. You. you heard me? Okay. When... Thank you, Rick, for your benevolent forgiveness. Thank you, thank you. You know, we can be right, but not righteous. I've said this before. When we love someone, it's not the fact that we want to prove that we're right. We actually just want to walk in righteousness. And so the idea of actually saying, is my perspective, is my, is my understanding of Scripture on, on the processes of being part of a community of faith, is that right? But is this loving to that person? And that's how we've got to manage that reality. Is, is if my effort is motivated by love, then I can live in this way of hidden faithfulness and holiness. When our perseverance is fueled by hope, I cannot say this any better then Eugene Peterson says, you know, I thought about this the other day, that two of Sean's man crushes passed away last year. 
Dallas Willard and Peterson. Sorry, Sean. He has one left. You know, me. So. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> Peterson says this, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fantastic, sorry, fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. Remember, what has God called you to? Focus on what he's called you to and not necessarily the result or outcome. He will provide the meaning and conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. However, hoping is also not dreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. And I love this line. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. He wrote this book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He's not just a man who wrote that book. He's a man who fulfilled what he said, a long obedience in the same direction. When our, when our perseverance and patience and steadfastness is, is fueled by this deep sense of hope, a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do, because there is this apparent dichotomy. And I was chatting to Karen about this, but Nick, Scripture talks about reward. Jesus talks about reward. He also talks about reward when, you know, on this earth. And, and there's this apparent dichotomy of not, you're not doing what you're doing for a reward. The Scripture says that you will receive a reward. There are truths and promises about reward. Jesus says to his disciples, no one that has left mother or father or brother or sister for the sake, for my sake or for the sake of this kingdom will not receive reward in this world and in the age to come. There is a reward, but it's not what we think it's going to be. You know, we think, well, I left a brother. Am I going to get a brother? That's not how it works. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15 says, No one can lay any other foundation beside the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So whether someone builds on top of this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will clearly be shown. The day will make it clear because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work survives, they will get a reward. But if anyone's work goes up in flames, they'll lose it. However, they themselves will be saved as if they'd gone through a fire. Eternally, there is this reality of how we build on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Whether we build on that with with gold and precious stones, or whether we build with wood, hay, or stubble, that which will be burnt up at the end of the age. There is the sense of reward, but it's not what we think it's going to be. And let me say this, I don't know what that is. I have some idea, but I do know this, is that every time God has said to me, I have something for you, it's way better than I ever thought it would be in my own imagination. Finally, we can live a life of hidden faithfulness when we understand this deep truth. We are loved and chosen by God. Verse 4, brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. And we know that he has chosen you because he has sought you, he has saved you, 
He found you when you were lost and he brought you into this upside down kingdom. And let me say this, you are chosen regardless of your faithfulness. Yes, I'm challenging and encouraging us towards a hidden faithfulness. But the greatest courage that we have is regardless of our faithfulness, he is faithful. What did Lisa remind us of this morning? It's not our ability to hold on to God. It's God's ability to never let go of us. And in our strivings and in our desire to be pleasing to him so that when people look at us, they they think of like, what is your life? There has to be a gospel explanation for your life. That is why we do it. Not to earn it, not to be worthy of it because we cannot be. Not because of our performance. We live a life of hidden faithfulness mainly because we are loved, chosen, and empowered by him. But Nick, this is so difficult. Banjo, you can come up. Yeah, this is not easy stuff. Problem is in our society that we assume that fatigue is automatically connected to obligation. So this is what we think. This is tiring, it therefore can't be good for me. This is hard, there obviously can't be anything positive that comes out of this. If I'm weary or experiencing difficulty, this cannot be God's will. Most of what Karen does when she's a doula is she's saying to women that are, that are going through this labor, this is normal, this is good, this is necessary. You will see your child. Do not give up. And what Jesus is saying to us, what the Spirit of God is saying is, this is hard, this is difficult, this is normal, but you will reap a reward in due season if you don't give up. Why? Because you're so strong? Because you're so faithful? No, because I am strong, and I am faithful, and I am with you to the end of the age. Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10 Paul says to three churches, three different churches in three different countries, going through three very different circumstances, he literally says the same words to them, do not grow weary in doing good. He says to the Corinthian church, he says to the Thessalonian church, he says to the Galatian church. To the Galatian church, he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, in the proper time, You will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Church, this is not a new problem. Paul is writing to churches that are newly planted, that are seeing masses come to faith, that are seeing people raised from the dead and he's telling them the same thing. Do not grow weary in doing good for in due season... You will reap a reward if you do not give up. And we're not like giving up on my ability to hold. What are we not giving up on? On the fact that he holds me. When I have no more strength to give, I access his strength. When I have no more faith, I access his faith. We do that because we rest on the fact that our faith, love, and hope is inextricably part of our relationship with Jesus. Am I in loving union with Jesus? We don't pursue faith as this weird kind of theological sphere. We don't pursue hope. We don't pursue love. We pursue Jesus. 
And as we pursue Jesus and place ourselves in a position to hear from him and be filled by him and be challenged by him, we see faith, hope, and love seep into our souls. Isaiah 49, verse 14. But Zion said, Israel said, people that were chosen by God, not seeing the promises of God, but people that God had spoken over, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And God says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your incredible faithfulness. I want to thank you that when we feel forsaken, when we feel alone, when we are so tired, when we are so weary, that it is your faithfulness, it is your love for us that gives us hope. God, I want to pray that as we respond in worship, I want to pray that your spirit would work. I want to pray that you would reveal areas of hidden faithfulness where where we can invite you to strengthen and encourage us. I want to pray, my God, that you would reveal areas in our lives where our labor has not been out of love, but out of obligation or recognition. God, I want to pray for those in our midst that are just weary, that are faithful, that are on this road of a long obedience in the same direction, but need you to lift their eyes, to strengthen their hands and their feeble knees. Spirit of God, faithful, faithful God, come and and minister to us. There's been some incredibly profound and powerful things woven together in our presence this morning. And what I, what I aim to do is just to draw our attention and faith to a couple things that I think God is inviting some of us and for others, all of us into. One of the things that Nick's mentioned, uh, Nick mentioned is that it's not about seeing a return. It is about training your soul. And it will bear fruit if you do not give up. Faithfulness is the basis for our flourishing. And there's just been a a tone that has been present in Nick's preach. This isn't the whole thing, but there's been a lot of invitations not to give up this morning. And so I'm just under the impression is that one of God's or several of God's children have been contemplating that choice and can look a variety of different ways. One of the ways it looks is departing from community. I'm not saying like you're considering going to another church, you're just considering leaving the body. And I want to encourage you not to do that. And if that's you, I want you to receive prayer. I am confident that people here will sing the promises, will pray the promises of God over you. So if that's you, you don't need to raise your hand. And there's a bunch of people that receive prayer for different reasons. But the Lord has brought you to this invitation this morning, and I pray that you choose what Peter Peter said. Our Lord holds the words of eternal life, and there is no other place that you will find them. So return to him this morning. Uh, The other thing 
I just want to encourage the weary. And this is different. Uh, you're tired. Uh, you've maybe thought those questions. Why am I doing this? This hidden faithful thing that only the Lord can see. The kingdom advances by those hidden moments of faithfulness. They are so much more important than you could ever imagine. I'm convinced that it's the moments in private, the moments with the Lord alone that actually sets us up to do the good that he sets us out to do in this world. The Bible talks about that whenever we are gathered, Jesus reminded us to do this very thing. The reason he did is because he knew we would need to be reminded of the gospel. That we would need to be reminded last week to forgive one another and again this week. We would need to be reminded that as we are rooted and established in the love of Christ, we can actually live lives of faithfulness. And the Bible says to examine yourself before this meal. So Lord, I want to pray on behalf of whoever may be withholding forgiveness. We have no place at this table when we refuse to forgive others. Jesus, you said that. Do not expect my Father in heaven to forgive you if you do not forgive others. Lord, I thank you. I think that what you were teaching us is that those that have encountered the gospel, it's not a matter of if, but when we extend that. And so, Lord, anyone that we have been holding in our debt, we release them because we have been released from debts we cannot pay. Father, as we take this bread, we are reminded of your faithfulness. You took your human body and had it broken by the hands of sinful men so that we can find wholeness and restoration. We say thank you. And Lord, we thank you for the covering of our sins. We thank you that the blood of the most precious being that ever walked the face of this earth was unjustly spilled so that we could be justified before the Father, that we have a place at this table and we say thank you. My friends, do not be simply hearers of the word of God, but doers of it. And so if you've been a place of doubt or you need prayer for anything, let, God, let the people of God Proclaim the promises of God over your life to wash away any deception or deceit that has been placed before you. Jesus, we say thank you that you've made us yours. Lord, I want to pray that you would help us to believe that so fiercely that no lie can stand a chance against it. Lord, I pray that that truth would help us to care little about what our accomplishments may or may not be perceived by. Lord, that the moments of our life, our aim is to please you. And Father, we say we trust you with every outcome. Lord, would you help us to stay fervently committed to the task of serving you and you alone in all things, in every breath that we breathe, in every thing we set out to do, may our aim always be to worship you. So Father, would you help us do that? Lord, would you help us not only to revel in this reality, but to proclaim it with our lips and lives? Father, would you help us to demonstrate to this desert of a world the life that comes with fullness of Christ? 
Father, I pray that we would be refreshing, a refreshing presence in a thirsty land. Jesus, thank you that you are the head of this body. Continue to lead us. Our lives belong to you. We say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.